12-mile-long witch, and you burn her body, and it smells like frankincense? How is it? They, they say, how is it? I don't know. But it's happening. We shouldn't think that our charges were living centuries ago, like Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur and Sanatana Goswami, the principal commentators on Srimad Bhagavatam, the original kind of commentaries that everything follows in the wake of. We shouldn't think that they were, well, this is 500 years ago, and people believe these kind of things. Then they, they, they were superstitious, and they weren't informed by science and so forth, as we are today. And uh, they didn't have really access through the Internet to all different traditions and so forth, and, and to see that these are, this is just a myth of the society. And it's good, it's valuable. There's a good, many wonderful lessons to learn from that, ultimately. But it it's doesn't have an ontological standing in, uh, of itself that may appeal to our rational mind. But don't think that these acharyas, they weren't, they, they also didn't think, this is a little unbelievable, people are going to have a hard time believing. They say that in a couple of places. And they give, you, they give you the answer. They say, I know this sounds unbelievable, but you shouldn't think like that. When Krishna got up early one morning, again, it was Balaram's birthday, it's another one of those occasions. Balaram was waylaid by family responsibilities from going out with the cowherds and the calves into the forest. Krishna got up early. Normally Krishna is resting till about six. Baladev gets up a little earlier, blows his bugle, buffalo horn, and all the cowherds who are just kind of chomping at the bit to get out of the house by that time come running out and flood the courtyard of Nanda Maharaj to wake up Krishna. Hey, Krishna! Uta, Uta, get up, come on, let's go. This morning, Krishna got up early. He blew the, the, the horn. Little, everybody came, got, came out early. Baladev was couldn't come. He sent a message. I know you're up to something special this morning, and I'm going to miss out. But I'm, my uncle is sitting here like a, like a petrified piece of wood on the couch. He won't move. And I've got family responsibilities because it's my birthday. But carry on. I know you're up to something extraordinary. <laughs> so, so millions and millions of cow herds assembling. Millions of cows, calves, really. Krishna was just a calf herder. This, this is, the, of course, the leading up to the slaying of Agasura. Yeah, and then Brahma Vimohan and so forth. And Balaram, of course, wasn't present, so he didn't see what, what took place. He found out later he could understand by observing everything. So Krishna Shakti is at play here. But at any rate, there, the description is so many millions of millions of millions of millions of cows. And so this is one instance, for example, Vishwana, I believe, brings up the point that, well, you know, you might think Vrindavan is only so many square kilometers or so many meters and miles in circumference. How could all these cows fit there? One probably was once asked a question like that. You're probably aware of it by one of his students. Prabhupada, I calculated it, and the, and the land of Vrindavan has got this much room, and Nanda Marsh had 900,000 cows. 900,000 cows wouldn't fit in that tract of land. What did Prabhupada say? You, you think too much. <laughs> These things are supposed to make you stop thinking. That's what they're, they're like Zen cones, you know. They're supposed to make you stop thinking, just give up. All contradictions are resolved in Krishna. Once I was walking with Prabhupada and Vrindavan, 
And somebody said, one of my godbrothers said to Prabhupada, Prabhupada, when we go to Radhakund from here, we have to take a bus. It takes a few hours and, you know, we go to Govardhan, we go to Kamvan and all these different places of Krishna's pastimes. We're traveling by bus and it's a long trip and so forth. And how can Krishna go from, you know, Nandagram to Rasalila, Stali along the banks of the Jamuna and get back in time? He's on foot there. He was trying to understand like that. And what did Prabhupada say? He opened his hand like this. He said, Vrindavan is like a lotus and all the different places are so many petals. And when Krishna is standing on one petal, he wants to go to, to another petal, then the lotus closes up like this. And then it opens again. Now, does that make any sense? <laughs> does it have to? <laughs> that is the point. We so much want to make sense out of everything. That's a problem. This is a problem. Gyane prayasya udapasya namanta eva. Mahaprabhu liked this sloka very much. And who spoke it? Brahma. He's got four heads. That means he's got four you know, intelligences. He's a big thinker. He thinks about it in all directions. And he said, this is a problem, this thing. The nature of reality is such it just won't fit between my eight ears, or the 16 ears, or whatever, two, four, six, I guess eight. eight. Uh, won't fit there. It's not possible. Stop trying to figure it out. This, this is the idea, really. There's no meaning to life. That's, that's the fact. Because love has no meaning. I mean, love is beyond, beyond reason. This is the idea. Bhagwan, Anando, Mayo, Byasat. The Absolute is Ananda. There's no reason there. It's beyond reason. We reason up to a point. What is that point? That the reasoning is limited. I need some transrational means for knowing comprehensively. If I'm to know comprehensively, reality, then it will be necessary that reality will make itself known. And again, how can the finite know the infinite? Is it possible? Is it possible for the finite to know the infinite? No. You sure? Yes. But if the infinite, out of its infinite capacity, wants to make itself known to the finite, then is it possible? Yes. Then it's possible. Otherwise, no, you're right. The finite on its own cannot. But if the infinite, what is infinite, can do anything. What it probably used to say, I think it's a, actually a quote of Napoleon. It was quite successful against all odds. I mean, he was just a street guy. He became the emperor, not only of France, but of Europe. I mean, it's an incredible story. He said, impossible as a word in a fool's dictionary. You've heard Prabhupada say that. Printing yeah, for printing books, right? For printing Chaitanya Charitamrita in two months. When Ramaswar said to, was about a bottle of yeah. yeah. And along the Venice Beach, Prabhupada, we've made a plan how to print the Chaitanya because Prabhupada was saying, I'm ahead. I've written 17 books and you're 17 books behind. So they said, we stayed up all night and made a plan. And the plan is, we'll print two books per month. They were doing one book a month, which was the Bhagavatam. And so they were going to continue to do the Bhagavatam one book a month, as I remember, and then two books of Chaitanya Charitamrita each month. So it would take eight, eight months to catch up. So Prabhupada said, two books? 
per month. I want all books in two months. And I tell you, Ramaswar, like, he did just short of like fainting right on the beach there, just being taken out to the sea. He said, That's impossible. Yeah, he said, That's impossible. And probably just walked on. Impossible? That was the word of the fool's dictionary. And then they just like, <laughs> just kind of like, you know, faded into the background of the morning walk. Bewildered, but then they got it done, didn't they? So, infinite. We are finite, so it's very difficult to understand what is infinite. We are kind of, even when we talk about it, we, we tend, tend to, to limit that. So, perfect knowing that will be possible if what is to be known wants to be known. Again, we are objects, practically, in relation to the Absolute. We are prakriti. Yes, para-prakriti. So we're conscious objects, different than matter, but nonetheless, fully dependent, isn't it? We can't know his abode by our material instruments. We cannot know. Not only that, but them aside, the bare soul itself doesn't have the capacity. You should think about that. Soul is Tatasta Shakti, Jeev Shakti. We have Jeev Shakti, Maya Shakti, and the Swarup Shakti, right? As Prabhupada says, internal energy, right? Swarup Shakti. And marginal energy is the Tatasta Shakti. And external energy is the Maya Shakti. So, this Swarup Shakti is the source of all Shakti. It's Swayam Shakti. Like Sri Radha, Krishna's Swayam Bhagavan. So Sri Radha's Swayam Shakti. So all Shakti has its source in Radha. All the feminine counterparts of Krishna, in all of his avatars, they're all coming from her. So she's the source of all the Shakti. So the Tasta Shakti is one of those Shaktis. So that Swarup Shakti, the Tatasta Shakti is a partial expression of the Swarup Shakti. And the Maya Shakti is a, like a perverted form of that Swarup Shakti. It's all one Shakti, like Prabhupada just said, for heating or cooling, the same energy is used, but different effect. So, in Swarup Shakti we have Sandini, Samvit, Ladini, existence, cognizance, ecstasy. In ourselves, we have existence, we have cognizance, and we have some capacity for ecstasy, some capacity for joy. But not the same as the Surup Shakti. We exist, so that won't doesn't change. We can know that we exist, Brahmagyan, and we can relish Brahmananda. Maya Shakti, on the other hand, well, all the manifestations of material nature are temporary, so it exists but kind of here, there, and gone tomorrow. There's material knowledge, but it's really, from a broader perspective, ignorance. And there's material happiness, but if you look at it from by standing back, it's really distress. Right? Material happiness is just distress beginning. It's just the beginning of distress, that's all. It will turn into that invariably. So it's a it's a distorted 
condition of the Surup Shakti. We're a partial manifestation of the Surup Shakti. But we, as opposed to matter, have the potential to experience Sandini, Sambit, Ladini, that kind of existence, that kind of knowing, that kind of ecstasy. By coming in touch with Surup Shakti, this is this idea of Bhava Bhakti, when Sudasattva Visheshatma, Prema Suryam Sushamyabhak. This Sudasattva means Surup Shakti, the ingress of this into the heart of the jiva, then the, the inherent potential of the jiva is realized in connection with that. But not in connection with that, it won't be realized. So not only are our material senses and so forth and mind not proper instruments, they cannot give us any purchasing power for real estate in a land where not only there's no death, but there's that kind of joy, swarup ananda. But we ourselves, on our own strength, have no capacity for that. See how we are dependent. So what is infinite? If we want to know, if we want to have perfect knowledge, then we are imperfect, so we have to have a perfect means. What is the perfect means? You have to fold your hands. That is the perfect means. If you're before something that you cannot possibly conquer, then you do what? Sharanagati, right? You surrender. That is faith. This is how we're getting somewhere. We're going up against, you know, upstream. If you understand the thing properly, then you have to surrender. Now you have means for knowing. This is the beginning. It means you relate to reality in such a way that it becomes uh, favorably disposed towards you. Krishna says in the Gita at the end of the fifth chapter, what? Bhoktaram jagatapasam sarvaloka maheshwaram surhidam sarvabhutanam gnatvamam shantamichit. He says, I'm the supreme enjoyer. Everything is mine. Everything belongs to me and everything's for my enjoyment. When we hear that, it's like you have a heart attack. Nothing, nothing for me. No enjoyment for me. Nothing for me. Nothing for me to own. He says, yep. Okay, if you can live through that, the heart palpitation of that, then the next line comes. Surhidam, sarvabhutanam. But I'm your friend. Surhid means friend. You can, you can live with me. I own everything. I'm the enjoyer of everything. But I'll be your friend. That is then, then no trouble. I can be the friend of the person who enjoys everything, who owns everything. I don't have to tr be troubled by owning it myself or to generate enjoyment. <laughs> so to make friendly terms with the infinite, this is the idea. This has great power. To rely upon his power rather than our own. Such an aggressive way to try to attain the absolute. Uh, these these uh, ganis and even yogis have. They're so aggressive and arduous and difficult and not very at all user-friendly kind of approach. But Mahabharata was given so user-friendly and so uh, rich in reward. Easy to do and the fruits are better. So, yes, we can know if there is perfect knowledge which some people say there's not. Some people say that's a folly to think there's perfect knowledge. What do we say to them? They think, they think that we're crazy for pursuing perfect knowledge. Our reply to them is what? You think there's no perfect knowledge, but you think your opinion is perfect. Yeah. 
they say there's no perfect knowledge, but they're pursuing it with every breath that they take. So who's crazy? In other words, there can be no action without knowledge. Knowledge informs action. Without knowledge, there's no action. All actions are informed by some kind of knowledge. Everyone's moving. And how is everyone move, trying to move? Perfectly. Everyone is trying to be perfectly happy by their actions. So everyone is pursuing perfect knowledge. And some people who are doing that say it doesn't exist. So who's crazy? Those who say that it exists or those who say that it doesn't, but pursue it anyway. And we pursue it in a way that's practical because it's perfect. And we're steeped in imperfection. So it's venerable to us. It's uh, worshipable by us. We should approach it in that way. Then, out of its perfectness, it's perfectly affectionate. Krishna is controlling everything. How? You see, Brahma is a controller. Indra is a controller. All these gods and goddesses on some level are controllers. But how are they controlling? And why is Krishna the supreme controller? Brahma's controlling by thinking. He's thinking it out, all four, you know, from all four sides and organizing how the world should be and like that. Very busy fellow. Indra's got eyes all over his body. He's checking everybody out. <laughs> making sure nobody's watching him when he's doing the kind of things he does sometimes. Everyone's con has all these gods, they have some capacity to control. But why is Krishna the supreme controller? Because of how he controls very comprehensive approach to controlling. What is it? By affection. He rules by affection. That will conquer you more comprehensively than anything else. Right? This is his way. So, he's infinite affection. So, if we show little affection, then we reciprocate with so much affection. In this way, comprehensive knowing is possible. Otherwise, it's not possible. It's a folly to think you can know. This is Avaroha Panta, the descending uh, way of ascending. Ascending by descending, by accepting the down current, making oneself a suitable uh, receptacle for that. It's coming like rain. You have to put out your hands to catch that. Some day for samsara dhavanana vidaloka. Tranaya karunaganaganatham. Sangsara Dhavanala is like a great conflagration, Mahadavagani, great fire. We are consumed in the fire of desire. No hope. Every firefighter, you know, we have a lot of fires out in California, especially in the summertime, in the West primarily, I think. Every firefighter knows how to pray. They see it's beyond our control, nothing we can do. We just pray now. For rain. This is our position. Sangsara, sangsara, it means circular. You're not getting anywhere. Moving but not getting anywhere. This sangsara is davanala. It's a big fire of desire. We're burning in that. We're being <coughs> devoured by that. Sangsara davana lida. It's painful lida. The people of this world. Sangsara davana lida loka. And tranaya karuna. Ganaganatam. That is the rain. Krishna says it is rain, mercy, our only hope from above. Something come down to help us. Extend a hand, a friendly hand. 
And don't bite the hand that feeds you. We should be careful about that. That's only common sense. That we mean, that's why we we call it apparat. It means that, just a common sense. It's not a boogeyman thing to scare people away or something like that, just to control people. It's true. We don't employ that just to control people. Watch out. You're making apparat. and control them. No, it's just, you should think of it like this. Such grace, such mercy. Well, we should embrace that. It's an affectionate outreach of the Absolute towards us. So we should reciprocate in kind. Take advantage of that. This way, real knowing is possible. Real knowing, real going. Home going requires a home knowing person. When that person speaks, then that hits home. Home is in the heart. Touches our heart and we know, yes, that's true. I should do that. I should go in that direction. And that's the hearing submissively, yes. Now I incorporate that in my life. I came to hear the truth. I heard that. That's true. I should do that. This is how you build a life. How you make yourself into something worth worth being. Satam, but is another name for a devotee. It means truthful. Satameva, Jayate. This would be victorious, you see. Stand up. If you know something's true, you should stand up for that. Incorporate it into your life. And if something is revealed to you and you know it, you understand it, and you don't stand up for it and speak, then what is your position? Worse than those that don't know, isn't it? Martin Luther King said in a famous speech that it's not the bigots and ignorant people that are our real problem. It's the moderates who agree with us, but tell us, now's not the time. Wait, Maharaj, things are getting better. <laughs> Everything's getting better. Of course, shh, don't talk about it. He said, King said, these are the real problems. They're telling us, not now. And he said, what, how many more hundred years you want us to wait? We waited so many hundred years. Not now? When then? You're the problem. You know better that you're not speaking up. So Brahman has to speak the truth. Of course, you have to be intelligent how to do that also. This will give us purchasing power for truth. You have to become truth. Again, Satam, that is another name for devotee, truthful. It's difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult, because we live in falsity. That's the whole, whole idea of material existence. It's a sham. So when the opportunity comes, stand up, be counted. It won't be popular. Don't, don't wait till it's popular, because it won't be. As soon as it's popular, then there's another truth. Popular truth, that is, means the whole thing's been watered down by now. Everybody accepts it. Truth will never be popular in a world of falsity. Our business is not to be popular. We are not interested in that. Shittamarsh once said to us, Yes, I've lived alone my whole life practically. But at least I was able to say the truth. <laughs> I had the luxury of being able to always say what, I, what was on my mind, what I thought was true. What in my heart I knew was true. It didn't make me popular, but I had the satisfaction. That means you're entering into a much bigger world, a much more friendly world. It will always look like uh, truth is the smaller side, but it's the tripad vibhuti. 
This is Ekpadvibhuti. This is a small section, material existence. It looks bigger, but it's really smaller and very uncomfortable. Truth hurts, but it's good. Like when I was a kid, and my, my brother, one brother my age, and, and uh, so when my parents would go out, we would, you know, cause a ruckus in the house, maybe break a lamp or something like that, you know. So my father would come home and say, who, who broke that? You know, it's like, well, uh, <laughs> he could have said, I, I, I don't know. That, he would have said, okay, fine, you know, you don't know, fine. And uh, there would have been no immediate pain, but it would have been strained the relationship considerably, as you can understand. It would have been created an invisible kind of pervasive pain. And if we say, well, I did it, then he'd say, okay, come upstairs. And there would be some pain. This was old school, you know. <laughs> but it was over then, you know. Then it was over. So, truth a little painful, just, but it's, just, it's short. It's over. Then you feel better. It's the falsity is then, which is the real pain, that is left behind, that is dismissed, retired. So we have to be courageous like this. I and mean, we came to this with a very courageous spirit, a very revolutionary spirit. You have to maintain that. Don't become complacent now. After so many years, just make it a religion. That's not what it. Mahaprabhu's is a revolution against religion. Do you understand that? It's a revolution against Varnashram, which is the standard religion. He says, "Trigunya vishaya veda nistrigunya bavarjuna." Transcend that. That's an arrangement yet for peace. Make things work, but it's not what love is about. Which is that spontaneous uh, movement. Uh, you don't have to list a bunch of rules on the wall. If I'm living with you as a roommate, and then we notice that you like to stay up at night, and I like to take rest early, and and you like to do something that irritates me, and I like to do something that irritates you, then in order to make the whole thing work, we like, let's work it out. I'll do this at this time, I'll go that. You'll do this, we make a list of ten things, put them on the wall, we live by those. That's a way of making it work, but that's not love, is it? You have to compromise. We end up doing that in our family, but I mean, because there's this potential for full love doesn't lie alone in there. In that alone, there's potential in the family life to derive impetus for real love. Great impetus. Household life is such a glorious thing if it's understood properly. It gives us so much facility and impetus to develop real love by sacrifice. But the key is to realize that, that, that real love can't be found in that alone. But love means beyond the rules. So Mahabharata was not giving a religion, he's giving a revolution. He was revolting against religion. When Ramananda said, he asked, what's, what's the goal of life? He said, well, you know, you live by the Varnashram. Mahabharata said, say something else, I'm not interested in that. I said, no interest. Now there's a place for that, it's a whole other topic. but. I don't mean to say that there's no place for that. There is, even in the context of bhakti to some extent, a kind of a, a way of situating people that they can make natural progress in the context of bhakti. But by and large, as I say, this is a revolution. I joined my Guru Maharaj and you know, so many of my godbrothers and god sisters and so many young people now also come in. This is a revolutionary idea. And if you were born and raised in this, it may not seem as revolutionary, but... You have to think about it like that. That's what it is. Mahaprabhu is asking you to be a revolutionary. And that means to be truthful. And that is revolutionary. 
It's, that's not what the world's about. It's not what the government's about. It's not, you know, everybody knows. It's not what you're about. And that's the problem. And so we want to take it to the extreme. We are activists to the extreme. And we're revolting against our own condition. Who can complain about that then? It's not against everybody else. Let the government be whatever it is. Who cares and who knows and who will ever sort it out? They don't get in our way of assaulting our ego, do they? So who cares then? <laughs> and that's how to get at the truth of the matter and what's really going on, how it all works. You can be as radical as you want. I mean, there's nothing more radical than this. And it's not good enough just to nod your head. Yes, I know you agree, but you have to do it. That's the point. It's really calling on, Mahaprabhu calling on everybody for this. That spirit, then with that spirit, then enthusiasm will come for hearing, for chanting. Understand what's at stake, what's involved. Like you said, well, this is heavy. <laughs> it's important. This is, whoa, am I ready for this? You're being called, ready or not. <laughs> ready or not, Krishna says, here I come. You know that game? Right? I don't know if the kids play it anymore, but ready or not, here I come. This is Krishna saying, ready or not, here I come. So we have to make ourselves ready. In this way, there's scope for, for understanding reality on reality's terms. This is bhakti. So Krishna says, you can go to my abode, not by these counterfeit ways, but by this way, by bhakti. He says, in my abode there's no need for all these things. Senses, material senses, material mind, they, 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 won't, they won't help you. You have to become like me, consciousness, like my abode, alive. And he says, for that matter anyway, I am the light in the material world. He goes on here. I'm the light, I'm the sun in the material world. I'm the light behind the sun, behind the moon, behind the fire, stars and all these things. He said, you should depend upon me. You should take shelter of me, he's saying, for, for comprehensive knowing. Your detachment should be in the context of pursuing me, becoming attached to me. Then there's scope for knowing me. Try to see who I am. I'm living in my abode, but I'm making your, even your own life. Where would you be without the sun and the moon in your world, in your frame of reference? He speaks in a macrocosmic way. I'm the, I'm the light behind the sun, behind the moon. Then he speaks microcosmically. Hey, I enter your body. I'm the fire that digests the food. This is, he says, I'm the supreme person. He's saying, reality is a person and it's me, not you. Is that so hard to understand? Reality is a person. Why is it hard to understand? We think reality is a person and we think the person is us. So that's how we operate. So to say that reality it sounds very esoteric. Reality is a person. Huh? But that's not such a stretch. And who's the person? And he's explaining it. It's all me and my Shakti. There's only Krishna. So who's to complain? Who's to blame? And we are one particle of one Shakti of Krishna. And he's the Supreme Person is inviting us to enter his abode with him. And where he's telling us all this, he says, and you come there and just forget about it. You can forget that I'm all those things. I'll just be your, your pal. 
new friend. This is an inconceivable opportunity, concept. Again, where the infinite comes so close to the finite for, for the sake of intimacy, then that finite, infinite has to take on a finite appearance. This is aprakrita lila. This is Krishna lila. It looks like material, but it's actually super-transcendental. It's beyond Baikuntha. Baikuntha people can't understand it. They can't understand that side, as they see it, of Narayan. They, they, they just can't quite get it. And the fact of the matter is, even that side of Narayan, as is expressed in Baikuntha sometimes, and slightly, that is not what Goloka is. That is not the Krishna of Krishna of Goloka. Krishna's Leela is not an aspect of Narayan. Narayan is an aspect of Krishna. Again, not only from a religious point of view, but from a spiritual point of view, this is revolutionary. Mahaprabhu is not even revolting against religion, but against experiential spirituality, Bhakunta, against this concept of life. Beyond that, don't get waylaid there in Bhakunta. This is what Mahaprabhu has come to offer us. So in the beginning, now this is Sharanagati, you acknowledge our dependence upon him. So in so many ways he's explained here, even materially speaking, how we're dependent upon him and how we should not depend upon our material instruments for knowing him comprehensively. So, so many things. Any question? Yes, um, I'm going to. Sometimes it seems that, uh, that uh, Krishna puts a devotee in distress because he likes to hear that call his name. Would you say that's a valid understanding at least sometimes? Sounds sounds good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes Krishna puts us in distress. And sometimes Krishna gives us enjoyment also as as we might desire. He also does that. But not in such a way that it will get in the way of our bhakti. Very uh, very generous in a in a true sense. Distress is, uh, yes, uh, negative impetus is sufficient. But on top of that, there's so much positive impetus as well. What else? Yes? You were talking about um, the need for Sambandha Gyan to be able to um, have our mantra of Hare Krishna become effective. And I was just kind of wondering. Why, you know, Sanan Goswami used the teaching vehicle of Gopal Kumar, um, and he didn't have Sambhana Gyan, he just had his mantra. And his mantra took him to finally understand everything. But it, and in the end it says that Krishna kept him from knowledge because that knowledge would have obstructed his journey. So. Mm-hmm. But the whole teaching of the book is... Gopu Kumar telling his his story to his disciple, giving him all that sambandagan, all that that the whole book is sambandagan. That is what that's what Brigat Bhagavatamrita is. It's the sambandagan of Srimad Bhagavatam. So Sanatana Goswami is giving that to you. At the same time, of course, the book is it's a way of saying what I'm saying, that if infinite wants you to know, you can know. Only by grace can you know, not by any other other means. The power of of comprehensive knowing comes from grace. Also, Gopu Kumar did get some instructions from his guru, points here and there. 
So the place for that also. And for that matter, receiving the mantra, that is sambandhagyan. Diksha, as I said earlier, that is comes under the category of sambandhatattva. So the knowledge of the relationship with Krishna is, is in the mantra. It's given, I don't know, some knowledge may help us to take advantage of that and so forth. But ideally, you might say it's not necessary, but practically it is. Ideal guru, ideal disciple, finished. Take the mantra, realize himself. And, but uh, that's not practical reality. That's the theoretical reality. So to understand Bhagavad Bhagavatam, to properly understand the Sambandha, Sanatana Goswami is giving all the Sambandha. What's what? Where? What are the possibilities? Also, religious possibilities, lokas. That means religious or spiritual possibilities. And it teaches ultimately, yes, this Gopi's love for Krishna, this is the most uh, venerable and highest ideal. What else? Anything else? Other question? Yes. Maharaj, you get to live sort of like, in other words, Krishna says, as a surrender unto me, I reward them accordingly thing, but the more you give of yourself to Krishna, the more he... Yeah. It means that by exploiting the world, which is taking, then you have to die. You see, you have to die to the taking tendency. And then you can live because as much as you're on the take, you owe. Yeah, you owe, right? You owe. You're implicated. Someone's after you. So in this world, in order to live in this world, materially speaking, you have to kill. You have to take. And spiritual life is just the opposite. In order to live forever, you have to give. It's just the opposite of the way the, the world uh, appears to work. But if we look closely, we see really, even materially speaking, when we become you know, less selfish and we give, then uh, we gain something from that. Right? Perfect. And you can't explain that. That's beyond explanation. So what to speak of full giving, as I said, which requires some knowledge, knowledge of who is the Lord of the universe, to use Gopal Kumar's term. He had to figure out who that was. That's someone again, you see. Then when he got that. Uh, so, some knowledge, then you can give fully, then you can know fully. That, that's what then manifests Krishna Leela. I was saying Krishna Leela is difficult to understand, but if you understand the theological and philosophical underpinning of it, and you can see as well, this is not just a story. It may seem unbelievable, but it's unbelievable too that by giving you, you will live. It's a nice story. Also. I heard once that uh, there was a, a group of kids, they were playing playing baseball. Well, I've told the story before to some of you. See if I remember it, you can help me. Maybe. <laughs> and the father was walking with his son, and his son was um, had some a disability. He was a disabled son. And so he saw the kids playing baseball. He said, you know, Dad, I want to play, I want to play. You know, he said, oh, you know, it's not time, you know, you can't play. No, I want to play. And he insisted. So he said, well, let's go, we'll go and watch. And the kid was insisting he wanted to play. And and um, he said, you know, he asked to ask the coach. And so the father said, all right. So he asked the coach and the coach asked the team. And so they said, okay, you know, let it, we'll let play much to the surprise of his father so let the kid 
come up to bat and it was um, the score was tied or something like that and uh, and so the kid came to the plate and and yeah it was like bottom of the ninth you know something like that maybe there was one guy on base or something like that and he was at the plate and it was and the team was if they got this guy out they would have they would have won you know and so it was like it was a no-brainer to get the guy out but the pitcher so the coach agreed and the captain of the team agreed so okay you know this was their chance the last chance to win the game and they think, well okay yeah. they get, they just they just gave you follow they let, no they let the kid go to bat and so then the pitcher this all just happened spontaneously the pitcher this was like the championship game he he walked up and just kind of threw the ball like this you know instead of throwing a fastball and striking him out and the kid swung and the bat hit the ball and it kind of dribbled and so the catcher said run run and so the pitcher picked up the ball and threw it to second base instead of first base so the kid got on first base and then and he threw the ball the catcher then the pitcher threw the ball to to the to the outfielder and they said and the first base said, run, run. So he ran to second base, and then he threw it to another outfielder, and the second baseman said, run to third base. And third baseman, run home, like this. And so you know, he, he made the, whatever it is, touchdown, or home run. <laughs> home run. So this is a true story. So it just Everybody just gave, and everybody won. I mean, they, they lost the game. But they won. They won something bigger. It's a very nice story, actually. Everyone felt this like in another world. They were all playing to win, right? To conquer, to take, to be the, be on top. And they all decided to take less positions. They all gave of themselves, and they all won something very substantial. They couldn't really describe what it was. They couldn't talk about it, and, and really. So what to speak of? Then ultimate giving, full giving. As I said in one of our other talks, when you give, even if your giving is not perfect because it's not reposed in the perfect object, because the perfect object is situated in acts of sacrifice, to use Prabhupada's language, his translation of the Gita, when you give, when you sacrifice, the feeling that you get, the wholeness that comes from that, amounts to coming closer to the Absolute. You're endearing yourself. He's attracted to that kind of people. So even if you give an ignorance, give. That's the idea. And that will give knowledge. Incredible. More than you could get by studying the book. You see, real love is pregnant with essential knowledge. No extraneous, extra baggage type knowledge that burdens your journey. When you love, you know what to do. You don't have to say anything. You know what to do. Essential knowledge. Love is the highest knowledge. It's the teaching of the Gita. Raja Vidya Raja Kuyam. Krishna says it's the ninth chapter. And what's the subject of the ninth chapter? Panchatattva. What's the ninth chapter of the Gita all about? What is that confidential knowledge? Kamalini? Um, is it about establishing relationships? Bhakti. What does Krishna say at the end of the ninth chapter? Manmana bhavamad bhakto 
Madhyaji Mamanamaskara. He gives the conclusion of the Gita there. It's all about Shuddha Bhakti. This is the highest knowledge. Bhakti is the highest knowledge. But giving, you live, you see, you get. That's the idea. So, as I say, this, this is Krishna Lila. The, the fact that people who have given comprehensively and completely by reposing their giving propensity in the perfect object, the supreme taker, this is their experience. Their experience is Lila, is Krishna Lila. That's their experience. So is it so hard to believe? Give and find out. I mean, when you give, it's unbelievable what you experience. It doesn't make any sense, in other words, that by giving, you'll get. You think, well, if I, you know, I got to take something for myself here, otherwise. But no, sorry, yes. No, I was thinking that giving is some sort of a form of submission. It was something that reminded me of something that you said um, that there's freedom through this apparent submission. Mm-hmm. Does that sort of go along with? You? Yeah, yeah. There's freedom in the tight grip of our Gurudev. <laughs> so much freedom there. <laughs>